unfortunately we're seeing uh, the countries uh, state actors from around the world whether it's China or others uh, are continuing uh, to play uh, aggressive games uh, with our institutions with our democracies and that's uh, why we are uh, creating new tools to be able to support them we are constantly working with our intelligence committees and officials was part of the answer given by the Prime Minister today when asked about uh, an important and worrying story today from Global News about Chinese interference in our electoral system. And we know that, that for some time now, CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, has warned about uh, foreign interference in Canada, in particular from, from China, Russia, other state actors. Uh, this story today, though, uh, provides some more details around that. Uh, that CSIS has warned and warned the prime minister directly and specifically that China has been targeting Canada with a pretty vast campaign of foreign interference, which included funding a clandestine network of at least 11 federal candidates running in the 2019 federal election. Well, joining us for some more details, the reporter who broke this story today, Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Sam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Um, so obviously Global News reached out to the Prime Minister's office before publishing this story. We got some further comment today from the Prime Minister. As, have we learned anything new or more from, from the Prime Minister's comments here? What did you make of his answers to these questions today? Well, there, there's an acknowledgement, uh, we could say at least, that there is a serious concern here. And indeed, uh, Canadian intelligence has been warning uh, at a high level that this activity from China is vast. No nation is doing more interference, and uh, it's it's our election system that's under attack. But perhaps you know equally scary is that uh, Canadian citizens, anyone that is critical of the Chinese Communist Party, can be uh, surveilled, harassed. Chinese Canadian communities, uh, Hong Kong Canadians, Uyghurs, Tibetan origin people in Canada, are living uh, their lives under real threats of danger from a Chinese intelligence activity. Another shocking uh, allegation that I, I, I gathered from intelligence was that uh, following the vote, if you remember, in 2021 and the House of Commons to declare uh, uh, China guilty of genocide right. uh, in Xinjiang, those MPs that voted for the declaration or, or brought it forward, we found that Chinese intelligence allegedly studied their writings to see if they could find connections to uh, uh, Chinese uh, companies or companies that trade with China. And in that way, uh, China could attack the local economies of uh, MPs and really get at the citizens in those wow. ridings. So it's vast activity. And with respect to the prime minister, I'm sorry, but no, Canada is not. Canada simply doesn't have foreign interference laws to deal with this sophisticated threat that China is putting forward. And uh, Canada really doesn't have the, uh, the resources with CSIS or the RCMP. But more importantly, there's laws that other uh, Western countries have put in place to counter this threat, and they're now in a better position. And Canada, for some strange reason, our experts uh, that I talked to say uh, this government in Ottawa is inactive, even though their own parliamentary intelligence committee has recommended these changes. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the, this warning specifically. So this goes back to January of this year, and this was contained in numerous... Um memos and briefing notes but but warnings that went directly to the prime minister what do we know about the content of those warnings 
from from uh, the, what I've gathered uh, from sources is that these uh, these alerts, this intelligence that stems from CSIS investigations over the past several years into China's foreign interference activity, uh, these uh, cases are collected and escalated uh, up to senior levels of government, including the prime minister. That's according to our sources. So let me stress that we took that to the prime minister's office and asked overtly, can you confirm or deny you've been told these warnings that our sources say you have mm -hmm. in all these detailed allegations? They haven't directly answered us, but our sources do, do, uh, do assert that the information has been brought up from 2022 and uh, so when people go on to our web website and read the story, this is very specific intelligence that, uh, that I have gathered, very detailed allegations that a Chinese consulate in Toronto directed large, clan, uh, large clandestine transfer of funds to support uh, these, uh, a number of election candidates and their staffers in the 2019 federal election. And I'm still gathering information, but... Uh, Certainly, there's indications that this activity uh, uh, carried on into the 2021 election when some MPs, uh, that uh, one especially that I talked to, believe they were targeted simply because they had been critical of, of the Chinese Communist Party's activities. Well, and obviously, this is, uh, you know, complex kind of investigation. What do we know about, the, you know, the extent to which CSIS has been trying to, to investigate and piece all of this together? What I've gathered is uh, CSIS has a great deal of information. Uh, how can I say this? Well, when you get the granular detail that uh, these intelligence briefs allege that a million dollars was transferred from this consulate in Toronto in 2014 to support a Chinese state-funded school, a, a controversy over whether that school should be in Toronto schools. Mm -hmm. This is a lot of money going uh, really into uh, covert activity to influence Canadian politics from the municipal school board level all the way up to the federal level. Uh, so what I can tell you is I I know from the information I've gathered that CSIS investigations continue. They have a great deal of information. Remember, they share information with our Western intelligence allies. And yet I come back to this point. They know so much. You would think you would be able to prosecute some espionage cases. But really, uh, CSIS does not have the laws to prosecute this activity. Now, regarding the candidates in question, now it's important to note that, you know, we don't know which candidates that were running the election received this or whether they would have even been aware, I guess, of where this was coming from. But just a, a point on that. Yes, we, we have to stress that the most current in, uh, information I've gathered in this investigation is uh, the intelligence said some of the alleged network here were witting, uh, wittingly uh, uh, affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. Some of the network would not be witting of this sophisticated activity. But uh, the CSIS investigations are very clear that certainly Chinese Communist Party intelligence activity is supporting allegedly this clandestine network. And, uh, and yes, uh, we continue to look into uh, identities and find more details about this alleged network, but we're not in a position uh, to point at anyone right now. Yeah. Now, you alluded to this in, in terms of where we still have some gaps, but what kind of a response did these warnings get? Was, was there any action taken to what were, I, I think, pretty serious and, and dire warnings? Well, there's really two, two simple answers to that great question. One, uh, 
the experts we talked to said, if this intelligence is confirmed as true, uh, and why why would this government in Ottawa not table new foreign registry or counter-interference laws such as the ones that uh, the United Kingdom has just put forward, Australia, similar laws, the United States, strong laws, Canada hasn't acted on those recommendations. So that appears to be inaction in the face of a very serious interference threat. Uh, secondly, have uh, uh, let's be clear, this network is not focused on one party. We do have my sourcing indicates that members of the two major parties were involved in this alleged network. And so uh, have, have any of the parties responded to our questions that, you know, have, have they become aware of these allegations? Are they looking at whether they have a problem within their party? And we don't have a response from the Liberals or the Conservatives to that very important question. You spoke with some experts, as you alluded to, that have pointed to where there are loopholes, where we are still maybe behind some of our allies and being able to deal with this, to stop this, to prosecute this. What, what are they recommending? Well, they recommend uh, they would point to Australia and say that, look, Australia was in the exact same very dangerous, very exposed position that Canada is currently with regards to uh, China's sophisticated, vast influence operations. And yet in around 2017 and 18, uh, the Australian government responded really to a lot of media exposure of these dangers, and they tabled these new foreign agent registration laws. And what that means is uh, you cannot be... uh, let's say, a a former politician or a business leader who is under the table taking consulting fees or doing business with Russian state, uh, Chinese state, Iranian state companies, and sort of earning money under the table working for a foreign state without declaring your interest. So in Australia, now in the United Kingdom, in the United States, you need to declare your interest as uh, doing work for a foreign agent, or you you could go to jail. But it's open season in Canada is what our experts say, because you could be doing that work for China. Uh, You could be taking money from a Chinese state company, lobbying secretly, and it's not illegal. (laughs) You really cannot be prosecuted because it's there's just no law in place to get transparency on that matter. Very worrying indeed. Much more on all of this. uh, Globalnews.ca. Sam, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Uh, That is Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper. As mentioned, uh, his big scoop up today at globalnews.ca. Headline Canadian Intelligence warned Prime Minister Trudeau that China covertly funded election candidates in 2019. Yeah, that's a big deal. And look, it's not about supporting one party in particular. China's very deliberate and targeted uh, in, in how it goes about this. And so this should be the kind of thing that, you know, all political parties can rally around. You know, the integrity of our system and, and dealing with a, a serious adversary that doesn't seem to have any qualms about interfering in our democratic system. A little bit uh, of the fuller answer from the prime minister here today when he was asked about this. The last two elections in 2019-2021 were the first times uh, we had actually established uh, a, a committee of senior officials uh, to oversee and to ensure that there was no electro- electro- electoral interference and uh, in the case that there were, uh, was to deal with it and to uh, share that with Canadians. Um, we have taken significant me- measures to strengthen uh, our uh, the integrity of our elections processes and our systems and we'll continue 
to invest in the fight against election interference, against foreign interference of our democracies and institutions. Unfortunately, we're seeing uh, the countries, uh, state actors from around the world, whether it's China or others, uh, are continuing uh, to play uh, aggressive games uh, with our institutions, with our democracies, and that's uh, why we are uh, creating new tools to be able to support them. We are constantly working with our intelligence committees and officials, and we've created, as you know, uh, specific uh, intelligence and national security committee of parliamentarians uh, that are engaged in these issues and others to ensure that we are able uh, to deal with uh, more threats uh, in the future. Well, this week, the COP27 Environmental Summit in Egypt gets underway. World leaders will be convening this week. Notably absent will be the leader of China, leader of India, leader of Russia. So without those three leaders, without those three countries involved, what kind of progress can we actually make? What about the Canadian perspective, though? So there will be the Canadian delegation. Also this year, there is going to be an Alberta delegation at COP27 that will include uh, the Environment Minister, Sonia Savage, uh, the Deputy Minister, three departmental staff from uh, the Department of the Environment. There will be a broader Alberta delegation, though, with representation from industry, academia, NGOs, and municipalities. I think there's a story to tell. Look, you know, there could be some, some awkwardness if we've got conflicting uh, arguments being put forth by the Canadian delegation, the Alberta delegation. I think there's an opportunity here uh, to sort of speak as one voice and to talk about the successes we've had as a country in making great strides as an energy-producing nation on the environmental front. Part of Alberta's delegation, for example, will be representatives from the Pathways Alliance. And I think that's part of the story to tell. We've had some of uh, our biggest energy producers come together and begin the work toward net zero. So there is an important story to be told, I think. And let's hope that the industry, let's hope that we are not singled out this week at this conference. Joining us uh, to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Cody Batterzill, founder and chief spokesperson for Canada Action, CanadaAction.ca. Cody, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me. What do you see as, you know, some of the opportunities, some of the challenges going into a a big conference like this? Well, COP27 is a really important global gathering. You get a lot of media and leaders from all over the world, except for a couple of those key important countries, as you mentioned. And it's really an opportunity for for Canada to make sure that the story of Canadian leadership in environmental protection, carbon capture climate innovation, clean technology, and collaboration is being told. It's also uh, a challenge, as we've seen in previous years, to make sure that uh, we're not being misrepresented. You know, a lot of these activists and protest groups are, you know, talking about Canada in a way that's not balanced and it's not factual. And uh, we're seeing with what's going on in the world right now that energy security and environmental leadership, uh, a balance of the two has just never been more important. Right, that's the thing. And look, I don't think typically Canadian officials go there to to pick fights, um, you know, and, and so there's a conciliatory approach. But oftentimes, I think, unfortunately, 
you know, we, we hold back from pushing back on some of those narratives to, to really champion what we are doing here at home because, I don't know, I, I think we have a lot to be proud of. We have everything to be proud of. And where we have room to improve and grow, we are the first to acknowledge that. I think as Canadians, we're quiet sometimes, we're quick to say sorry and apologize, but we really do need to fly our flag and, and champion our record because with cop happening with the global challenge at hand canada has such an important role to play and when we talk about that record it means attracting more investment into canada for canadian resource development for local jobs and prosperity that then has an outsized global positive impact on the climate and the environment case in point today with a new study out from wood mckenzie talking about how if we can get canadian liquefied natural gas to asia it would reduce the equivalent emissions of every car on canadian roads and that's a huge example of how we have an important role to play in the global future for climate and energy security you know, yeah, and that's an important point. I also mentioned, you know, the Pathways Alliance is a great example of, you know, the work that's being done to lay the groundwork for something much bigger with some tremendous investments in carbon capture coming down the road. I think we're, we're on the cusp of something much bigger, it feels like. Yeah, we are. And Pathways Alliance and previous uh, examples of industry collaboration, I mean, we're, we're one of the only, I think we're the only country I'm aware of that has had the oil and gas industry collaborate and work together to send up a satellite to monitor emissions, for example, working together on water uh, uh, intensity reductions. And then, of course, carbon capture, utilization and storage. And we've got to make sure that Canada is not left behind. The United States has recently implemented some uh, policies to encourage investment. We've got to make sure that we're not reactive. We've got to be proactive, tell our story, make sure we can get that investment and uh, really be champions of Canadian energy and resources for the entire world. That includes uranium, agriculture, oil and gas, of course, hydroelectricity, nuclear small modular reactor technology. There's so many other great examples that we need to be telling the world at COP27. Right. And I mean, obviously, the focus is on environmental policy, but ultimately, you know, what we end up with coming to these conferences are, are the kinds of environmental policies that stifle that innovation, that, that certainly stifle that kind of investment. So what do you see as the balance between, you know, talking about environmental policy, but also recognizing energy reality? Well, the energy reality and the fact, and it's unfortunate, but all of these pipeline protests against Canadian projects over the last decade have simply caused Canada to produce less and export less to the global uh, consumer and for other countries to take that market share, it's actually increased emissions. I mean, it's actually led to more environmental risk and it's led to less energy security for families and higher costs. So that's the reality of what some of these policies from some of these protest groups have done. Um, Look at Europe right now. There's stories of people burning garbage to stay warm, burning wood, burning um, other, you know, more polluting sources of power and heat to stay warm. Countries like Sweden and other places turning on oil-fired power generation again because natural gas is hard to get and too expensive. And there's an example of East Coast LNG, West Coast LNG, and also Canadian oil, like Energy East, Northern Gateway. These were other also important projects that we should really be talking about getting back on the drawing board for global for, for that global contribution, um, you know, there's been so much misinformation about 
how we do things in Canada, and COP27 is a great place for us to really be proud, stand up, talk about our record, and talk about how we're leaders in protecting people and the planet. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're there and, and hopefully willing to do that, it's quite a contrast as, contrast, as we alluded to earlier, the fact that, you know, the leader of China's not going, the leader of India's not going, the leader of Russia's not going, and maybe there are some political reasons for that. But, you know, China, as the world's biggest polluter, uh, you know, it's, it seems a little odd that we're going to try to to have this this tremendous progress without them at the table. You know, how, how much of an issue is that? Yeah, I mean, we're talking like 3 billion people. And, you know, the world's almost at, you know, 8 billion people now. So it's a, it's a huge part of planet Earth and mm-hmm. of, of human beings not represented. And we know that, you know, the climate is global, emissions are global. Um, recently, talk about Cedar LNG in BC is another great example. It will reduce global emissions, even if there's a localized provincial increase in emissions. The key is global. We got to right. think global and act local in what we're doing with our resource industry and our resource sector for prosperity and the global climate and environment. So we, we need all countries on board. And if we're not going to get everyone there, well, then we can think, I think, further about carbon capture, technology, uh, exporting our know how, also, of course, natural gas and oil produced to the highest standards of human rights for energy security. Uh, considerations and the environment those things got to go hand in hand or you're going to see more unintended consequences where people are burning garbage because they can't get natural gas that's affordable and uh, you know our allies in Europe are asking Canada to step up we have a, a much larger opportunity I think in the years and decades ahead as we take a pragmatic approach to support all energy supplies, which and that's really what we need. Yeah, well said. Much more at, uh, as mentioned, CanadaAction.ca. Cody, appreciate it as always. Thanks for joining us here. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. That's Cody Battersill, uh, founder, chief spokesperson, Canada Action, CanadaAction.ca on uh, social media as well, at Canada Action. So some points about maybe the message we need to have going into this summit, that, yeah, look, we're, we're willing to be a part of the solution. We're willing to do our part. But we also got to be realistic. You know, how much more are you going to ask of countries like Canada if, you know, the two largest countries in the world, population-wise, including the largest polluter on the planet, are not even at the table? And so, yeah, we've got a lot, I think, that, that we can stand up and be proud of. I think there's some interesting and important conversations happening in this country around the issue of homelessness. I think the urgency to deal with the problem Uh, But the consequences of our inability to deal with the problem, whether you live in Edmonton or Calgary or Vancouver or Toronto or Halifax, you know, it's it's probably something you're aware of and and maybe something that you've experienced. You know, the situation on our streets. I think Canadians are generally sympathetic or even empathetic, but Canadians are, are also concerned. Some interesting new polling done by Leger, uh, done for Post Media, uh, showing that Canadians are growing increasingly concerned about the problem of homelessness, the impact that it's having on our cities, and a real frustration when it comes to governments that often talk a good game when it comes to ending homelessness, but don't seem to be able uh, to get a handle on the problem. Now, we've had some high-profile situations in this country related to this problem. Just recently in Burnaby, 
a young female RCMP officer, was stabbed to death uh, responding to a situation at a homeless encampment in that city. In Calgary, there was a high-profile case of a uh, basically a, a, a large tent community that police had to, to go in and disrupt because of several acts of violence that had occurred there. So joining us to talk a bit more about, you know, the perspective the Canadians have on the situation. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Andrew Enns, who is Executive Vice President uh, with Leger Central Canada Operations, more Leger360.com. Andrew, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. We appreciate it. So, yeah, some interesting findings here, uh, you know, that suggest the Canadians while sympathetic, are are worried about government's ability to to deal with the problem. What, what jumps out to you here, first of all? Well, you know, sure. First, uh, you know, first off, to your uh, to your point, your intro. I mean, there is a there is an increasing um, uh, you know percent of the population that is that is uh, you know feeling homelessness is a problem in where they live. Uh, you know, we saw that. Uh, you know that number, uh, you know, fairly high at uh, 58%. Agree that there's a, it's a problem in their community. Um, there's, you know, uh, even a significant number of of uh, Canadians who are feeling that uh, homelessness is making them feel unsafe in their community. 46%, uh, you know, agreed with that statement. And then when you get out in different parts of the country, that number can be even higher. Uh, you talked about the issue in Burnaby. Uh, you know that number is at seventy percent uh, of people feel that uh, you know the homeless homelessness situation in in uh, in their part of the world is making them feel unsafe. So it's 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 definitely got their attention. It has. Uh, so those are some big numbers in terms of you know how people perceive it as a problem. You know, and, and the situation that cities are dealing with and trying to manage these kind of makeshift you know tents, these these shelters that are being set up, almost these encampments that are that are coming up. Increasingly, it seems like Canadians, you know, aren't aren't comfortable with that. Well, yeah, you know, and it was interesting. We we uh, we asked a series of questions in terms of sort of uh, you know what rights um, you know individuals have to to sort of um, you know be in certain places or 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 conduct certain things. You know whether or not it's temporarily shelter in public spaces uh, like libraries or parks, uh, or or uh, you know seeking money or other forms of support in public spaces or, or setting up tents. And we ask these questions from a perspective of an individual versus a group. And it was interesting. I mean, there's not a not a huge amount of difference. I mean, there's similar. Um, you know, I would say there's not a lot of you know there's not a majority of people who support groups setting up uh shelters in public uh you know uh, in public places like parks or vacant lots or in riverbanks only a quarter of like a quarter of canadians feel that that's uh that they have a right to do that um and you know it's so it's it, it's kind of an interesting um you know we've seen individuals i think over the you know over quite some period of time in downtowns and you know in various areas maybe uh you know asking for for some spare change or or things of that nature but more recently i think the encampments is starting to probably i'd say put a little bit of a more of a of an exclamation point on the situation and you know forcing us to sort of ask some hard questions 
Yeah, and you know, I alluded to it. There's there's some frustration when it comes to government's ability to deal with all of this, but there's also the question of, of you know who bears that blame because there's a lot of overlapping jurisdiction here, and it feels like you know Canadians aren't in agreement, I guess, on which level of government is most responsible. That's right. We asked the question, um, you know, which uh, of the three levels of government that we uh, we provided, provincial, municipal, and federal. Who uh, who's uh, you know most responsible for addressing homelessness? And to your uh, you know to your point, Rob, it's it's pretty divided. Thirty one percent of Canadians um, singled out their provincial government, and uh, then twenty nine percent, right close behind, singled out the municipal government, and then thirty one percent or and then twenty five percent singled out the federal government. So realistically just a, a, a kind of across the board. And I think that touches on, uh, you know, what you alluded to in, 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 in the question to me is, is that there is so much overlap. There's a, mm-hmm. there's health in, you know, there's health implications, there's law enforcement implications, there's, you know, different services at different levels that, uh, that make this a real for, even for Canadians to sort of identify who should fix the problem. It's not a simple, uh, it's not a simple question. It's not, but I mean, you know, Canadians do support, uh, you know, steps to, to address the problem, whether it's funding for mental health, additional shelters, you know, work programs. There, there seems to be a lot of support for for that. There, there is. We, you know, we tested a few of those, a uh, few of those supports. I mean, eighty-eight uh, percent, you know, support uh, more funding for mental health and treatments. I think what you, think what we're starting to really see, Rob, is is a growing um, agreement that that this isn't say back in let's say 20 years ago where you would look at a homeless person and say you know he just doesn't have a job if he had a job it would be okay I think we're starting to really come to grips with the fact that these individuals um, perhaps some could use some employment but there's some that just have some some significant uh, mental health supports uh, some addictions issues yeah. We're seeing great support for just more more shelters in general in terms of the you know housing and and and, uh, and things of that nature. So, it's um, you know I, there's support for those things, but I think we also see some frustrations that it doesn't seem to be um, we don't seem to see the problem getting any uh, getting better. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem to be any me- measurable sort of positive progress. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you've got almost double the number of people who think government is making things worse than people who think right. government is making things better. So there's, there's, you know, some aura of pessimism hanging over all of this. Well, that's right. I think, um, you know, certainly um, I, uh, I kind of, uh, when we put together these questions, I was viewing things through the lens of a, of a few municipal elections that we had been doing a bit of polling in, in, um, British Columbia and on in Ontario and in, in Manitoba and and in those uh, those elections the issue of homelessness um, you know was quite high up in in terms of the issue matrix for uh, in those municipal elections and um, you know I think it's a it's a it's a bit of a yeah, it's a bit of a wake-up call, I think, for government when we ask that question, you know, do you think, you know, government and all the activity, I mean, there were lots of promises made in those three jurisdictions in terms of uh, solutions and, and lots of incumbents pointing to things that they had done. But I think at the end of the day, uh, to your point, you know, twice as many people think it's it's getting, you know, government, all this government activity is actually 
you know, not helping things, and, and or at best, it's just things are staying the same, which is not which is not actually a good thing. So, yeah. it's a it's it's a it's definitely a challenge for policymakers, uh, you know, at all levels of government these days. No kidding. Uh, much more on all of these numbers again. Leger360.com. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rob, and good rest of your program. Appreciate it. Thanks. Andrew Enns, Executive VP with Leger, Leger360.com. Uh, this uh, poll they did uh, in conjunction with Post Media on how Canadians are feeling about the uh, situation around homelessness. Right? Again, there's, there's sympathy still, Canadian support. Funding for mental health through additional shelter space, work programs. But, you know, at the same time, and I get that, you know, governments and, and advocates don't want to stigmatize homelessness. But we can't deny the reality. We spoke recently about those municipal elections in B.C. And these issues were front and center. In particular, we saw it in Vancouver, where municipal politics leaned pretty heavily to the left. But a kind of centrist or right of center uh, candidate prevailed with a big focus on these particular issues. Now, the stabbing of the RCMP officer actually happened after the municipal elections. But in the lead-up to those elections, there have been many stories in Vancouver about, you know, these, these random attacks on, on citizens, right? And, yeah, so people are starting to fear for their safety. And that's where sympathy can evaporate very, very quickly. And I think governments need to be cognizant of that. That it's not enough to say, hey, you know, we, we you know, we got to have some sympathy. You got to understand all of these things. But there's a limit, I think, when it comes to to uh, public opinion. So it, it's important, I think, the governments be cognizant of that and maybe have some urgency uh, when it comes to to dealing with this. I get that there's not easy answers here, but you know, there's a growing frustration uh, on the part of Canadians that the problem's not getting any better, and it's getting to the point where it's starting to affect public safety. And those numbers, as, as Andrew alluded to, are much higher in B.C. 72% uh, believe that the problem is leading to increased violence in their community. Overall, 46% of Canadians agree homelessness makes them feel unsafe in their community. 58% uh, say that it is a problem in their community. 46% say that, you know, tents, these you know, sort of public encampments uh, should be banned in public Spaces, that, that's a tricky issue for governments, but does that speak to a lack of shelters? Does that speak to something else? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.